going to give that brain of yours a new home. HPPodcraft.com To Mrs. Savile, England. You will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. I arrived here yesterday, and my first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare, and increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking. I am already far north of London, and as I walk the streets of Petersburg, I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling? This breeze, which has travelled from the regions towards which I am advancing, gives me a foretaste of those icy climes. Inspirited by this wind of promise, my daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I try, in vain, to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible, its broad disk just skirting the horizon and diffusing a perpetual splendour. There, for with your leave, my sister, I will put some trust in preceding navigators, there snow and frost are banished, and, sailing over a calm sea, we may be wafted to a land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hitherto discovered on the habitable globe. Its productions and features may be without example, as the phenomena of the heavenly bodies undoubtedly are in those undiscovered solitudes. What may not be expected in a country of eternal light? Now that is the opening of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a tale about a young neurosurgeon who inherits the castle of his grandfather, the famous Dr. Victor von Frankenstein. In the castle, we find a funny hunchback called Igor, a pretty lab assistant named Inga, uh-huh. and the old housekeeper, Frabluka. Frabluka, yeah, that sounds a little more like Young Frankenstein, the uh, Mel Brooks movie. It does? Yeah, that's I, that's not quite the plot of this book, Frank. This book, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. <sighs> okay. You okay? Yeah, I just, I got to be honest with you, dude. I, I've never actually read anything we've ever talked about on the show. <laughs> what? I just watched the movies. You've got to be kidding me. I'm surprised I've gotten away with it for this long. I, yeah, I'm really surprised too, because who's making these movies for you? <laughs> if you're doing that with the Dracula or Frankenstein, you know, yeah. you can get that in all kinds of flavors on all kinds of channels, but there's no like Dark Brotherhood, Seven Edgar Allan Poe movie. Well, no, but... So, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you don't have a movie, is what you're doing? Are you having Greg Johnson shoot a movie for you real quick? Well... So that you can watch it and then do the show? I've done that recently. You know what else uh, we like making Greg Johnson do is read some motherfucking Frankenstein. Oh yeah, that's right. Greg is here to give life to the monster. To this monster that we are going to be discussing here, because March is for Frankensteins on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com, I'm Chris Lackey. And I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I want to get into the story pretty quickly here. But for some brief context, here's a short bio of Mary Shelley that I'm taking from the Signet Classic edition of Frankenstein. Born in London in 1797, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley was the daughter of William Godwin, a noted social theorist, and Mary Wollstonecraft, one of the leading woman literary figures of the day. Her mother died soon after her birth, and Mary was raised first under the care of servants, then by a stepmother, and lastly in the advanced intellectual atmosphere of her father's circle. In May 1814, she met Percy Shelley and in July of that year eloped with him to the continent. Two years later, after the death of Shelley's wife, the poet and Mary were able to get married. (laughs) It was in Switzerland in 1816 as a result of a story writing competition among the Shelleys and Lord Byron 
that Mary began Frankenstein, her first and most famous novel. Published in 1816, it was followed by such works as Valperga, The Last Man, Lodor, and Faulkner. In 1823, after the death of her husband, she returned to England. There she devoted herself to the upbringing of her son and the securing of his right to the Shelley family title. She died in 1851. There you go. So those are the basics on Shelley. H.P. Lovecraft, obviously, was an admirer of this novel. Yeah. That is why we're covering it on the show. Here's a little of what he had to say in supernatural horror and literature about the book. Mary Shelley's inimitable Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, is one of the horror classics of all time. Composed in competition with her husband, Lord Byron, and Dr. John William Polidori, in an effort to prove supremacy in horror-making, Mrs. Shelley's Frankenstein was the only one of the rival narratives to, to be brought to an elaborate completion. And criticism has failed to prove that the best parts are due to Shelley rather than to her. The novel, somewhat tinged but scarcely marred by moral didacticism, tells of the artificial human being molded from charnel fragments by Victor Frankenstein, a young Swiss medical student. Created by its designer in the mad pride of intellectuality, the monster possesses full intelligence, but owns a hideously loathsome form. It is rejected by mankind, becomes embittered, and at length begins the successive murder of all whom young Frankenstein loves best, friends and family. And he writes more, but then he's kind of doing our job for us because he's yeah, just basically so we don't, yeah. <laughs> summarizing Don't things. let him do that. Yeah, but this is good at the end. He says, some of the scenes in Frankenstein are unforgettable, mm. as when the newly animated monster enters its creator's room, parts the curtains of his bed and gazes at him in the yellow moonlight with watery eyes, if eyes they may be called. You can see that, that, would, that he would love that yeah. turn of phrase. If eyes <laughs> yes. they may be called. Mrs. Shelley wrote other novels, including the fairly notable Last Man, but never duplicated the success of her first effort. It has the true touch of cosmic fear, no matter how much the movement may lag in places. Mm-hmm. So that's Lovecraft's take. And mm-hmm. I've actually got a foreword Shelley herself wrote in the 1831 edition of the book in which she talks about that writing contest. Right. And also addresses that controversy that she didn't write the book. You know, people could not believe that this was a first novel from a 19-year-old woman. Yeah. And so they attributed it to her husband, which I think is mm-hmm. stupid. She obviously wrote it. But we can talk about that stuff later. Uh, one last thing I wanted to get out there. This book is called Frankenstein or... The modern Prometheus. What's the meaning of that other title? As you know, Prometheus was the titan who made the first man out of clay and then later stole fire from Zeus to help man survive. Mm-hmm. Now, Zeus did not like this, so he chained Prometheus to a rock and then had an eagle show up to eat his liver. <laughs> At night, his liver would grow back, and in the morning, the eagle would show up again to eat the newly grown liver. So this would go on for all eternity. The idea is... That Frankenstein is like Prometheus and that he dared to play God. He dared to defy the gods mm-hmm. and is subsequently punished sure. in the most awful way imaginable. As the guy says in the Ed Wood movie, Bride of the Monster. He tampered in God's domain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that he did. Uh, the story starts off with some letters from this guy, Robert Walton, writing his sister. So I haven't read the story in almost 30 years and I totally forgot about this wraparound stuff. I remember it seeming so strange to me when I initially read the book. I think it was in junior high that I read it the first time. Yeah. But I was only familiar with the movies, and I thought, aren't they supposed to be in a graveyard getting brains or something? You know, what is it with this Arctic stuff? Yeah. This time around, I'm actually reading the Marvel Illustrated novel with the illustrations by Bernie Wrightson. Oh, yeah, I've got that. That's great. It's so great. I, I remember buying the book in the 80s. It's really never been out of the plastic. But what's the point of having it if you're not going to read it? So I'm, I'm actually enjoying reading it. Yeah. It has a foreword by Stephen King in which he says, I'll just suggest this, that more people have come to this novel with high expectations that are dashed than perhaps to any other book in the English language. I would guess that half of those who begin reading it for fun never finish it. Oh. That was not my experience. Yeah. 
I adjusted pretty quickly to what was going on, but I guess I can understand right? because this book is very different from the movies in all sorts of ways, which we'll discuss. Anyway, uh, Robert Walton writing to his sister. Robert feels like he hasn't accomplished much and he wants to do something great. So he's serving on this ship that is going to the North Pole. He's hoping that they're going to discover a northern passage, the Pacific, or figure out the Earth's northern magnetic pole, or just find some land that nobody's ever discovered before. Right. Well, he's not just serving on a ship. He's running the whole expedition. He has served on many ships because he's had this singularity of purpose. Yes. His whole life to be an explorer and to discover something meaningful. I think for a while he wanted to be a poet, but that didn't work out for him. So this is the thing that he really wants. And he wants to be the best at everything involved. So in terms of seafaring, it says, I voluntarily endured cold, famine, thirst, and want of sleep. You know, he could have had a cushy life, but he's been conditioning himself to be rough Mm -hmm. for this very moment, for this expedition he's going to head up now. So he's made it to Russia. His first letter's from St. Petersburg. He gets to Archangel and he hires a ship and he's got a bunch of crew members. He gets them together. He's ready to go on this on this expedition. In his second letter, Robert writes about not having any friends. He's just too smart and cultured to be pals with the shipmates who are ignorant slobs. (laughs) He's a romantic. Yeah. These guys just sit around and drink and play sailor's hornpipe on the accordion all day. So, you know, it's not for him. <laughs> and th- this is all uh, our warning setup. And we see this in so much of Lovecraft's work. And the other fiction that we've covered on the show, the narrator says, you who are reading this, heed my tale. And no, you should not fuse dogs with cats, you know, or whatever. <laughs> you should not get into weird science because it's going to ruin your life. Except I think Mary Shelley is very ingeniously doing this in a melodramatic way. Yeah. Where Frankenstein is not going to address this warning to the audience directly, no. but instead to this other character who's out there on the edge of the world in a similar pursuit. This character, Robert, is a soulmate of Frankenstein's. He has sacrificed so much in his life for the purpose of discovery. He hasn't made his discovery yet, however. And so it's a moment when a friend could intervene and deliver that warning, which is why I think she sets up, ah, I just wish I had a friend here. In the third letter, Robert tells his sister that they have finally set sail and he thinks that they are going to do great things. By the way, it's just something that made me chuckle when I was rereading this portion. For some reason, Robert goes into the story about the master of the ship mm-hmm. when he's talking about, yeah, most of these guys, he's like, I believe that people should be nice to each other. There's a very feminine point of view here. Hmm. Like, I hate ships where people are so abusive and nasty. I would like to have a ship where everybody's cool and I found out about this guy that I hired as my master who's really gentle. In fact, he's too dumb to hang out with. But <laughs> he was going to... Then she goes into this whole story. He was going to marry this girl and he bought a farm for her. But then she says, no, no, I'm actually in love with this other guy, but he's too poor to marry me. My dad will never permit it. So my master, he's so awesome. He gave over his farm and everything to the poor guy so that she could be happy. He was totally cool about it. Yeah. And that's what a good guy he is. Why, why did she slip that in there? Yeah. It was it was odd. And and it was like it's like she snuck in this really pleasant short story because it's going to be rough from here on out, you know. <laughs> I guess so. So here's just like a nice story about a guy who was super cool. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I just it really stuck out to me this time. In the fourth letter, which I guess is most of the book really, the ship right. gets stuck between two big sheets of ice. They spot a huge guy pulling a sled about a half a mile away, and the next morning they see another sled stranded on the ice floe. All the dogs, but one of them is dead. This man on the sled is starving and he's dying. They want to bring this guy on board, but the guy refuses until Robert says that they're going to go north. It's the strangest thing in the world. This guy is, as you said, this guy is on the edge of death, yet he's still like, might I ask where you're headed? <laughs> yes. The crew's like, guy, just get up here. Let's give you a biscuit. <laughs> 
<laughs> the stranger spends two days recovering on the ship and is taken care of by the crew until he's able to really speak. Now, everyone's dying to know what this nut is doing out here, but Robert tells right. them, hey, back off, let him recover, and then the stranger will tell his tale. At first, I wasn't so interested in this jazz with Robert because mm. I was like, let's get to the monster, let's get to the science, yeah. let's get to Frankenstein. Right, right. I just wanted some Frankenstein action. But when this stuff is getting laid down here, when Frankenstein, and this is who the stranger is, obviously, uh, yeah. shows up, he starts talking about, you know, risks and, and knowledge and the cost of knowledge. And, you know, he says to Robert, you seek for knowledge and wisdom as I once did. And I ardently hope that the gratification of your wishes may not be a serpent to sting you as mine has been. Right. So then it's like, okay, this is, so all that, that we've been reading in this character is just to kind of get us in the right mindset. Yeah. And it's also stating the theme, which is the theme of so much horror fiction that we read, which is knowledge is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's some of that cosmic horror that Lovecraft was talking about. Yeah. If you step outside of what you naturally should be involved in, then you're going to suffer for it. And yeah. That's certainly what we're going to see here. And we also have a bunch of layers in the story. So we've yeah. got Robert, who's telling the story to somebody else. So Robert's telling his sister the story that Frankenstein is telling him. And then we have Frankenstein later on in the book telling us other things that other people have told him. Yeah. So it's it's a common thing in, in horror fiction. We've talked about it a lot on this show. Yeah. That it, it's trying to create that feeling of maybe an oral tradition. But also that if somebody's telling you a story that sort of gives the teller some kind of deniability. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not making the story up. I just heard it from this other guy. So you can decide if it's true or not. Right. Another thing that's, you're absolutely right. And I, I think that also allows us the possibility that the narrator is unreliable. Yes, well, exactly. Right? Yeah. Which is so common in these things that we read. It's such a great, uh, such a great device. Another thing here that's interesting. I think there are some adaptations, some film adaptations of this book that are more faithful. But the consensus, yeah. I think, has been that the reason it gets so changed much in cinema is because it's somewhat un unfilmable. There are some story elements I think that might be tough for audiences to get over in this novel. There are ri mm -hmm. a ridiculous number of coincidences in this book. Mm -hmm. We know that those were more common in this era in literature. A lot of stories that we've read have those giant coincidences happen. Yeah. And audiences didn't care so much. Modern audiences really do. But I got to say, structurally, just from a structural perspective, it is very cinematic. Like, we can't start the story with Victor as a child being loved by his parents. Mm -hmm. There's got to be something to give us an idea what this novel is going to be like. So this opening gives you scope mm -hmm. and tone, yeah. and it makes you ask questions. Bang, you're out there in the Arctic, and you just get a glimpse of the monster as he goes by on the sled. And these guys might as well be in outer space. That's the first weird thing that happens. What are they doing out here? Yeah. They're like nowhere <laughs> close to land. Yeah. And then also, since we do four shows for these novels, we'll split the book into quarters so we examined this quarter of it and this is just like it was when we did Wuthering Heights the first quarter of this book is a perfect first act Yeah, it sets up all the characters Victor gets pushed towards his purpose and then when he creates the monster we enter the second act right and that's how he caps this first quarter yeah. is creating that monster so let's go through it real quick chapter one Victor Frankenstein goes into way much detail about his family <laughs> if I was Robert, I'd be like, I don't care about your mom. I want to know about the eight foot guy pulling a sled in the freaking Arctic. That's what we need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but he's ill, so you got to be patient with him. Yeah, I guess so. So Victor's dad, Alphonse, got hitched late in life. He had his bud, this guy, Buford, who was a merchant. He had some hard times. He got sick, didn't tell anybody about it. Buford's daughter took care of him until he died. And when Alphonse found out about his friend being poor and dying, he was mortified that he couldn't help his buddy mm -hmm. and his daughter Caroline was basically a beggar in the street so Alphonse 
took her in, rescued her, married her. I guess that's what you do with your friend's kids. It's what I do. What? Keep going. Anyway, they they had a strange bond. They were totally in love, even though there was like 20-year age difference. Victor was born two years later. The interesting thing about that is that Frankenstein's father seemed to have some similarly, similarly obsessive qualities because he was a diplomat and a, a government official most of his life, and that took up so much of his time, he did not have time for a family. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until this thing came about with Caroline and he fell in love. In the two years before he finally marries her, he gradually lets go of all of his business interests so he can be dedicated to her and to creating a family. And I think that that's what we're seeing the example of what you should do. Right. Obsession is good, but at some point you have to shed it so you can be with people. I seem to remember that in Transformation there were some similarities to these stories as well, where with the diff- you know one family falling out of in poverty and the other one trying to rescue it, and a kid mm-hmm. becoming adopted so that there's this weird sister brother love relationship. Something that she clearly uh, thought about a lot. <laughs> so uh, Victor tells us that his childhood companion Elizabeth Lavenza, when his folks were in Italy, they found this blonde kid in with all these dark-haired people. It turns out she was an orphan daughter of a Milanese nobleman and a German woman. These Italian, these dark-haired people took her in immediately because they were servants of the noble family. Her father was still alive. They thought he was a Milanese nobleman, but because he was rebellious against Austria, right. he may have been imprisoned or murdered. Right, right. They were taking care of her while he was busy about that, but now that he's disappeared, They just can't handle her. So the Frankensteins decide to adopt her. Both Victor and Elizabeth are around five years old at this time. Caroline thinks that they should totally get married when they grow up. Mm -hmm. That's Victor's mom. Victor calls her his cousin, even though she is more of a sister to him. And he says it a lot in kind of a creepy way. Yeah, he says, my more than sister. Since death, she was to be mine only. It's pretty creepy. Foreshadowing there. Digging around, um, I found that that wasn't in the original 1818 version but there was a revised version in 1831. Mm. And the original version, Elizabeth is Victor's cousin, the daughter of Alphonse's sister, uh, when Victor is four years old. But Elizabeth's mother dies and Elizabeth is adopted by the Frankenstein family. So what's with the change? I don't know. To make them less related, perhaps? I I guess so, to make it less creepy, even though it's still quite creepy. That might be because that 1831 edition is the one I have the foreword for, so maybe she talks about it in there. Sure. Chapter two, Elizabeth and Victor grow up and are best friends. He meets a kid at school, Henry Clerval, and they become close friends. Yeah, and Henry is really into LARPing. What? It says, he composed heroic songs and began to write many a tale of enchantment oh. and knightly adventure. <laughs> he tried to make us act plays and to enter into masquerades in which the characters were drawn from the heroes of the round table of King Arthur, <laughs> etc. It sounds like live action role playing to me. You're right, it does. So that's what they spent, the three of them, that's what they spent their youth doing. As a teenager, Victor gets into the mysteries of nature and starts reading some strange, almost Lovecraftian books. One by Cornelius Agrippa, a 16th century scholar of the occult sciences. He also gets into alchemists, Periclesis and Albertus Magnus. And these books and authors have come up before, or they've been mentioned in other stories we've covered. I can't yeah. remember which stories exactly, because we... <laughs> We talk about a lot of spooky books, and it's hard to keep straight. But uh, yeah, they've definitely shown up before, especially that Magnus. Something significant happens uh, when there's the storm that hits where they are. There's this big bolt of lightning, and it it hits a tree. And then when the tree is hit by the lightning, it just totally destroys it. It's obliterated. And for some reason, that display of power really sticks with Victor. Right. It's just it's he he mentions it as something from his youth that really stuck out to him seeing this tree get eradicated but and i think that that's why a lot of the movies will use electricity as the principle that he uses to reanimate the corpse yeah but i think in the book here the real purpose is to demonstrate to frankenstein that all of these old occult guys he's been reading are kind of stupid Mm. the lightning 
when he sees it and witnesses its power, he goes and he reads up on galvanism and electricity. And he that's his first real encounter with new, solid science. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, man, this is the stuff I should be paying attention to. And for a while, he gives up the occult stuff. And so this was he thinks that this was fate's last effort to try to keep him from doing weird science, basically. This was oh, that last yeah. seeing that electricity was the last chance he had to go down the right path. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't stick. When he's a bit older, a friend of the family, a natural philosopher, tells him the stuff he reads is out of date. Modern science understands so much more. Basically, Victor had this idyllic childhood, or at least he likes to remember it that way. And mm-hmm. it did dawn on me at this point in the story that he's telling his own story, and I do question his reliability as the narrator. Right. He often says he feels one way, but he seems to be doing something else throughout the mm-hmm. story. And I think he's really quite full of crap most of the time. Really? He seems to be kind of a weakling, even though Mm -hmm. he sure thinks of himself as a tough guy. And Mm -hmm. this is a hypothesis I have. As we go through the story, I'll try and prove my point. Chapter 3. At age 17, Victor leaves his family in Geneva to go to the University of Ingolstadt. Before he goes, Elizabeth gets scarlet fever. His mom nurses her and she gets better. But then she gets ill and dies. Very serenely and beautifully. On her deathbed, she asks Victor and Elizabeth to be married. She She's like, before, I want to know you guys are going to get hitched. It's going to make me happy on my deathbed. I don't know why she's Jewish all of a sudden. <laughs> That's what she wants. And I guess they agree to it. Doesn't really say that they agree to it, but I, I assume that they... She dies happy, so I think that yeah. they at least let her think that's going to happen. There is some right. really personal writing here. It says, I need not describe the feelings of those whose dearest ties are rent by that most irreparable evil, the void that presents itself to the soul, and the despair that is exhibited on the countenance. It is so long before the mind can persuade itself that she whom we saw every day and whose very existence appeared a part of our own can have departed forever. These are the reflections of the first days, but when the lapse of time proves the reality of the evil, then the actual bitterness of grief commences. Mm. I thought that was very beautiful and that the message Mm. is is accurate. You know, when somebody passes away, you go through a few frenzied weeks of wakes and funerals and visitations and in the initial impossibility of it but it's those few months later when you've returned to normal life and people aren't really paying attention anymore that the grief really sets in yeah that's when you got to be there for people because that's when they need the most help i think anyway i just thought that was such a great description of it so after a few weeks of grieving he's off to school most likely to get wrecked because <laughs> Ingolstadt University is a total party school, man. Can't get anything done at Ingolstadt. Victor gets set up at school and meets this natural philosopher guy, M. Krimp. Krimp bags on the alchemist of old, and Victor also goes to a lecture on chemistry with this guy, Waldman. This eventually gets him into the sciences. Right. They're like, I can't believe you read that old stupid crap. You've got aptitude. Let's see you really go for it. And this is like a lot of the liter- literature teachers I had growing up. They they saw I was interested. They pushed me, not knowing that we would eventually unleash this monstrous show on the world and that all would suffer as a result. They just thought I had possibility. Yeah. I'm wondering about your reliability as a narrator. (laughs) Chapter four. Victor is enraptured with his studies, blows off his friends and family. He gets into the idea of creating life. He studies anatomy and the process of death and decay. For several years of study and work, he learns it all and surpasses his teachers discovering the secret to life. And he almost, Frankenstein almost glosses over this. Yeah. In the And this is a perfect example in storytelling how the effect is more important than the cause. Yeah. Things don't need to always be explained. Yeah. All we need to know is that he brought this creature to life. So he finds this little hidey place in his apartment where he, uh, where he does his experiments. 
He works so hard that he gets a little crazy and sickly because he's just totally obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. When talking to Walton, he brings up the light again, this light of discovery. He says, uh, from the midst of this darkness, Victor says when describing the discovery of the secret of life, a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous. Now, this idea that knowledge illuminates, makes things clear, ties mm-hmm. into what Walton says in the beginning, remember, because he says this land where it's eternally light. What what can we not expect? Exactly. In this, you know, you think maybe about fire. You know, fire lights and it illuminates, but it can also burn and destroy. And we know that Frankenstein hates fire. <laughs> the monster rather i like that when he's telling the story to robert he says i see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express my friend that you expect to be informed of the secret with which i am acquainted that cannot be yeah learn from me at least by my example how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow Mm. very lovecraftian sentiment there yeah But he was about to have a breakthrough. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? Or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful! Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same colour as the dun-white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. Now that he's done it, he's freaked out. He's made a monster, and he doesn't even really seem to understand why, like what he was doing. He, he, yeah. I mean, he's been working on this. He's revolted by Yeah, he's it. been working on this thing for, for months and months. Like He just didn't, the whole big picture of it didn't dawn on him at any point. Like, Well, I think it's, it's, it's expectation versus reality. There was no conceivable way he could know how it would feel to bring this thing to life. There was nothing before that he could see. So, you know, it was one thing when it was an idea, but now that it's actually moving around... It just drives him kind of crazy. It definitely drives him crazy, but I feel like he's a bit of an idiot for not thinking about it beforehand. <laughs> I agree. Like, I mean, it's like, oh, what? look at this. He's eight foot tall. Like, it, this guy's huge, and he's, like, super strong, and he's made him that way to be this crazy big thing, and he looks horrific. He must have an enormous von Stucker. <laughs> <laughs> At no point did, in his imagination... Like, think about it sitting up and, like, looking at him and talking or doing any, like... Well, yeah, I'm sure he did in his imagination, but then when it actually happened, it, it just freaks him yeah. out. Look, a lot of the stuff he does here makes no sense. Like, let's go through sure. it, because this is one of the big problems I had with the book when I read it uh, initially. He runs out of the room once the thing starts mm-hmm. moving around. He tries to sleep. Like, wh- what? 
this guy's you just brought a dude to life and you're just gonna like let him lie there but i guess it's just he's going crazy this it does seem like the behavior of a crazy person somebody that's just sort of going through some nervous breakdown you know like oh i don't know what to do i think maybe i'll just lay down and go to sleep (laughs) i'll just lay down and sleep for a while yeah it's got to be what it is i mean later he goes down with some kind of brain fever and he's sick for a very long time yeah and within a day yes so i mean i have to think that this is the point where that kicked in because this more than anything else in the book like i said was what bothered me the most when i read it i was like you just left and went to bed he has dreams when he's sleeping there uh, about his mother and about Elizabeth being a corpse, or at least being corpse-colored. So I think maybe a little foreshadowing there. Mm? Yes, perhaps. Maybe he just thought the thing would stay in the lab on the ground and wouldn't sit up and move or anything. I guess. The thing about it being on the ground, too, like it's described, it's at his feet, yeah. which is something that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah. So weird. Why would it be on the ground? Not on a table. Was he down on the ground? Yeah, it's strange. So you always see it on a table or in a some kind of mechanism, but there's something about it being down at his feet that's a little more mythological. Yeah. Also, just there's just a grotesqueness to it. I don't know how to explain it. But after he goes to bed, the thing comes to see him, and this is the image that is the genesis of the whole book. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead, my teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed when, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night, walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound, as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse to which I had so miserably given life. Oh, no mortal could support the horror of that countenance. A mummy, again endued with animation, could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed on him while unfinished. He was ugly then, but when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. So, once seeing that, Victor runs out into the night and just kind of wanders around his courtyard the whole evening. I guess he just doesn't know how to deal with the situation, so he just sort of wanders around until daylight. And then he goes walking around Ingolstadt. He doesn't want to go back to his apartment because there is an eight-foot-tall monster walking around, and he doesn't know how to deal with it. But I guess this is him having this breakdown, and he's not thinking things through. I I don't know what he is hoping is going to happen, that the monster is just going to walk away or turn into dust or something. Or he's just not thinking. He's just thinking he doesn't want to be there, and that's, as as a person suffering a breakdown, that's the best that he can do at that point. Yeah, it has to be complete mental breakdown because that was I was going nuts the first time I read this. It was the first, I was so into it, and then this happened. Yeah, and I eventually justified it with that. Okay, so he was obviously sick or just in some kind of shock. Right. But I thought, well, why couldn't couldn't he have just regretted it, tried to kill the thing, and the thing escaped? Yeah. Like I would I would get how it got out into the world for lots of different reasons, but it was troubling to me that it got out in the world just because he let it. Or maybe even he buries it and it didn't take. The thing still climbs out. I don't know. But what I like about this, actually, is that it 
really paints his character. If he did those things that you suggested, that would be him taking responsibility. Sure. Because what he does is he just sort of makes life and then just wanders off and doesn't deal with it. Right. Well, later in the book, he does take responsibility. So I guess that's the Eventually, yeah. When the monster asks him to build the the mate, he does what I just suggested. So Because he's forced to. At this point, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have to. Nobody's grabbing him going, hey, get up there and take care of that thing you made. Because nobody knows about it. So he can just wander around. And I think that that's much more telling of his character and his weakness than it is of if he did try to do something like, you know, kill the monster or bury mm. it or do something like that. If I don't deal with this, then it'll just go away. Yeah, time. which, of course, it won't. <laughs> well, I mean, it does initially, but then it comes well, back. You know, yeah. you can't ignore yeah. it, you can't ignore a problem for very yeah. long. Eventually, it's going to come back and get you. And I guess a lot of these questions are the same kinds of questions you might ask in church, right? And I think that that's because yeah. the, the, the story is about a creator and his creation. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that the monster gets called Frankenstein all the time mm-hmm. is because people assume that the book is about the monster. Right. Because the monster is, at the end, who we all really relate to. I mean, I think that we've all gone off on some crazy scheme like Frankenstein does here and then have it end up, you know, <laughs> the, the obsessiveness of it doesn't turn out. I mean, obviously on a smaller scale. Yeah. So there's that to relate to. But mostly it's this creation who... And we'll get into this in subsequent episodes. Who is created. I mean, he comes to the bed. It's supposed to be this incredibly horrific image, but it just hurts my heart yeah. to think about this because he's smiling. Yeah. In that instance, he's looking at him with a grin, just this innocent, babyish grin because he's new. Yeah. And he doesn't understand. And his creator leaves him to his own devices, gives him no instructions pushes him out in the world and doesn't give him any answers at all. And so the creation is left to speculate, why am I even here? Mm -hmm. And why would you create me only to push me into a world that's going to visit so much cruelty? Yeah. And those are like (laughs) eternal, primal human questions that uh, are being addressed in a roundabout way in this book. And a lot of people can talk, and and Lovecraft did in that quote we read earlier, about the inherent moralism of the story. And it's definitely there. But there are some... I think through the story of the monster, she's being a little unorthodox and asking some questions that might seem a little uh, heretical. Right. Yeah. So both of those things are at play. Well, uh, I think that this is probably a good point to stop for now, and we'll get back into it next week. Yeah. Like I said, this this scene with the monster standing over the bed is kind of the genesis of the story. So we'll talk a little bit about that next week, and then keep plowing forward in this book uh, it just just gets better from here it sure does and i want to thank greg johnson for coming in and being awesome thanks so much for reading and uh, hope we'll have him back as well that's all we got for this week i am chad pfeiffer i'm chris lackey and you've been listening to the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com fire, fire!